Today, it's a bit of a table turner because I'm the one in the interviewee seat. Artist Catherine Haggerty kindly came on the podcast to ask me some questions about my work. In a brand new episode in the Interview the Interviewer series. Except I'm the interviewer getting interviewed. Thanks, Catherine. If you've ever chanced upon my Instagram at Toulouse or seen my work in the wild and wondered what on earth is going on over there, well, today, all your questions will be answered. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Catherine. And we'll be right back. You are listening to Pep Talks for Artists, a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toluda. Hello, Catherine. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm excited to be in the interviewee seat. Uh, today, we're going to do a special interview, the interviewer episode with yours truly and with your kind help. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm looking forward to talking about my work with you today. Thank you, Amy. I'm so excited to dive into your work. Me too. I don't know what you're going to ask. I'm coming cold. I'm cold. <laughs> or as Jennifer Coates says, I'm hot dogging it. I'm hot dogging Oh, that's like <laughs> the best phrase ever. Um, so yeah, there's, there's so many questions I have about your work. Um, as we were talking about before, I really love your work. Um, and one of the first descriptive words that comes to mind with your work is sort of um, a level of like um, it being uncanny and kind of unwieldy. And so um, I think to get the, the, this sentence, um, your work is a little weird, is actually a really big compliment because I think in art, people want to be weird. And I actually think it's really difficult to, to, be, to be sort of uncanny and weird and like have this sort of um, non-sensibility with the work. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, so, so I think we'll get to the idea of sensibility and uncanny and weird a little bit later. But my, my first question is, what was your first art memory that you have? Uh, meaning like the first experience you remember doing something in the arts that felt like exciting to you and invigorating and sort of pointed to your life as it is now? You mean like as a kid? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there was a few things like I grew up in New Orleans and I would do these these like surrealist graphite drawings and put them in one of those like plastic sleeve portfolios. And I remember showing them to two artists at um a muse at the New Orleans Museum of Art who were running like an, a kids class. And they were so like I you know, if I look back at them, they're probably terrible be like a boat bobbing on a sea of eyeballs or something like that. But they they were really encouraging and they felt like they felt like it was something special for like, you know, a high school student. And I think that that encouraged me to think that, you know, I wasn't just somebody who was good at drawing horses, but like, <laughs> you know, interesting ideas. And I I also went to this um high school called New Orleans Center of Creative Arts and you could go for half a day in your public school life. And 
it was, um, you know, acting and dance and singing and, but also fine art. And I think meeting all the kids from around the city who were going there too, and feeling like part of this, like living creative being in this old uptown claptrap building was just one of the most exciting times of my life, I think. That's amazing that you had the opportunity to go kind of like half day to a specific arts high school. I feel like that's like the right balance, especially for some some kids to feel like they could have that experience and exposure. That's awesome. Yeah, I kind of wish everyone could have that. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, it was like all the nonsense classes like study hall, um, PE, no offense to PE people, but, um, <laughs> you know, whatever it was, sewing or typing or you know, home ec, that would all just get folded in. So you really only had your kind of reading, writing, arithmetic, and then you got on a bus and went over there and it was public. So it was free. And so it was very diverse and it was from all over the city. So there'd be, you know, kids who came from Vietnamese families and people of color. And it just wasn't, you know, you really, you just kind of were folded into this like loving arms of a creative community that just, I don't know. I, I, I remember not being able to sleep the night before. I was just couldn't believe I got to go. I just wish more kids could have that. That's so awesome. Wow. Yeah. I never had that. That's definitely really special. Um, and I like how you made the distinction between like the sort of study halls, PEs, home ex, like the, the spaces that education can sometimes make for people to relax, be creative, um, but sometimes like to an artist, someone who's like truly like gutturally driven by making the fluff in between like doesn't work, you know, like the the taste of the idea of the arts is not going to satisfy someone who's like really excited about making. Um, and so I think that's like an interesting distinction you made. And I feel like I, I probably felt similar. Like I wanted to be serious. Like I was like, I want serious art experience. Not that that was easy to get, but um. So did you have a teacher or um, someone who really influenced you as a young artist that like kind of helped you feel like more um, even driven or seen or maybe helped you formally understand things better when you were younger, either high school or college? Um, Yeah, I mean, there was all the teachers at NOCO were so funny. There was the the grosses there's mr and mrs gross and they were really ancient and they were the heads of the the department and then there was miss mouton who taught the printmaking and she did the jazz festival poster one year and we all got to go as teenagers to the jazz fest in the rain and just be like soaked and muddy and sneak beer and just we had like the best time so it was super idyllic but then i think when i got to college um I struggled to really connect with professors. I I still do. I've never been one of those people who's really good at keeping in touch with professors. It's something about like the the differing in power or the authority. I, I get a little squeamish around it. But I do I do think that um Phyllis Plattner was a the painting teacher and she really gave me a good foundation. In fact, I probably still use the same palette that that was like on her first syllabus, you know, for painting one with some a few additions. But I just um, the way she taught you how to like really see and look like you'd have to paint like a a corner, like any painting one uh, project, but like paint a corner of a wall that's white on white 
white pipes on a white wall and the the you know the challenge of that to try to try to find all that subtlety in what you're seeing was was like a really good foundation that's awesome um did you ever get to go to art camp I'm always curious some people get to go to art camp when they were um younger no did you ever get to do study abroad in college I didn't we were you know I think it was kind of out of our reach a little bit but um and also I probably was a little too scared to, get to do but that being said I did get a chance when I was in my uh college you know summer I did come come to New York because I went to college in St. Louis I came to New York and I stayed at the NYU dorm and I interned at Gagosian <laughs> and so that felt a little bit scary but um just this girl Elena and I were the interns and Elena lived on frozen yogurt and we were just two <laughs> little lambs in the city and we Aww. would get all of Larry Gagosian's favorite drinks and treats at the local D'Agostino and all these movie stars would come in to look at the art and it was all very tense <laughs> um and Elena and I would just you know we got, I kind of got baptized in the New York, into New York pretty fast. <laughs> that's like incredible. That's an incredible story. And just, so I could fun. go into more detail, but it's just like, like one of our weirdest moments was Elena came in completely shook up because she had seen someone commit suicide on the, on the subway track. Oh. And um, we were both like, this is going to be on the news tonight. Oh my God, what a shocking event. And it was never mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I think, two things obviously they don't report on suicide because it can create a copycat situation but the other thing is that the city is so big that there's something happening at any moment um that not everything makes the news and and that was a bit of a like eye-opener for us right yeah you guys are probably like this is such a tragedy and such a big deal and um yeah so much happens in new york in a day so it can kind of feel like overwhelming um maybe to a young person living and working here um Akagosia. <laughs> yeah he really likes he really liked diet coke and orangina so we always had to rush and get that <laughs> or sometimes like if he's treating himself he'd get a meatball sub at the local place and elena and i would be like oh my god it's 25 dollars the sandwich <laughs> the fancy I, I think he can afford that he could totally afford it but we were yeah. shocked um and because I was so inexperienced, like one time this little old man came in and he wanted to see, you know, Larry. And I was, I told the receptionist, like, oh, you know, he's, this man really wants to see him. And she's like, well, who is it? And I'm like, I don't know. Just this old guy. And she's like, but who is it? Who is it? And I was like, she's like, if it's Leo Castelli, of course, Larry's going to want to see him. But if it's not Larry, if it's just some random guy, he, I can't call him out. And I just remember feeling paralyzed. Like, I don't know everyone, all the famous art world members on site, but, um, I think it was ultimately him, but he was, he was very kind and nice. And it was like a, it was like kind, confident and nice. So he was obviously somebody, he was probably Leo. He, he must've been, he must've been. Yeah. Yeah. You probably, yeah. That sounds like. That was him. I think. Yeah, <laughs> it was probably fine. It was probably fine. I'm still, I'm still worrying about it, obviously. <laughs> I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in one of those early conversations with Leo Castelli and, you know, Gagosian because of, I mean, just the, I don't know if you read the stories about um, Gagosian sort of 
determined, if you will, is a mild descriptive word. Um, his sort of like obsession about art and collecting and sort of building this entire um, si sort of singular person empire. But he learned quite a bit from Leo Castelli. Um, yeah, I think it was everything. a big, a big mentor. And yeah. um, and he really didn't have a lot of art knowledge when he started. And he kind of he was selling like posters or something in the, in the California. Yeah, totally. Like on the beach or something. And then through the tutelage of Leo Castelli and like his just, you know, wherewithal his you know, pulling himself up by his bootstraps, like made this crazy empire and got to the point where he could enjoy as much Diet Coke and Orange Gina as he so yeah. chose. And subs. He could have as many subs as you Many want. meatball subs. And then his his lunch would be on like a silver tray um, with like, you know, cloth napkin and stuff like that. Be brought in by the receptionist and he was living the life. Yeah. Over there. I'm Madison That's Avenue. So That's so funny. Well, <laughs> you had you had quite the introduction. I don't think I had that introduction, but I love your story. That's so funny. Um, so when you like, did you ever spend any time living in New York City? Like after that, like was it was that a short stay or a long stay, or what was the sort of transition between the city and then um, upstate? Well, I graduated and on graduation day, I just literally packed up a Penske truck and drove to New York. And uh, my boyfriend at the time was from New Rochelle and he's now my husband, but he's from New Rochelle. So there's a comfort there. Like he yeah. knew the area um, in Westchester and knew the city. And so we literally just moved to New Jersey. We We got a place in New Jersey and it was fine. But I think at the time we didn't realize like, when we were in our early 20s, it was a kind of a style cramper because you'd have to take a jitney in to the city mm -hmm. and it would be a there'd be a, a cutoff and it really wouldn't go in later. So it was more for commuters who are working like real bona fide adults. Um, and so we had a blast there, but ultimately we decided to move to Brooklyn because then you could be on the subway line and it was a little bit more conducive to like partying. <laughs> And um, so we had a marvelous time in Brooklyn. We were there for, you know, 12 years and we were in New Jersey for probably like one or two years, um, just in North Bergen across the across the river. And and then um, I started to kind of hang up. My my friend Rita McDonald was house sitting upstate and she would house sit for these amazing houses, like a stone house that was like a originally Dutch and it had the big giant fireplace like not just a fireplace but like the cooking fireplace like the fireplace where like you could all like five people could stand in there um mm -hmm. it would be like that kind of house with the deep windowsills and so she would she had this kind of really good situation where she would have like live in Brooklyn but like house sit these nice houses and um I came along on one or two of the trips and I just really loved the area and then I I went to the Birdcliff residency a couple of times and I just felt this like spooky connection to this particular area upstate. And I was talking to Ever Baldwin about that too. Like they felt the same thing. And it, it's just weird because it's sort of a corny place. It's like tie dye shops. It was like the whole, you know, hippie music festival, but there's something weird here. It's like a, just some kind of like energy. And I just felt immediately at home. I was really attracted to the area. And we were living in Brooklyn and, you know, my husband's from New Rochelle. He wanted a lawn. He wanted like all that kind of like suburban trappings. He was tired of living in a cramped apartment and 
Um, we just took our baby, threw it in the car and drove up here and like moved here. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, he worked from home, so we were able to make it work, but it's, you know, not that easy for everybody else. And the first two years were kind of tricky because you don't know enough people, mm-hmm. but eventually you start to, you know, in Brooklyn, obviously I had all my grad school friends at some of my undergrad friends, I had a huge network of people and friends and artist friends, and it was just so easy and wonderful and then upstate i had to really work for it so i had to go to like you know an artist run space would open up and you've got all the openings meet that community then that place would close and you'd go to the next one that opened up in a different town you'd meet all that group and eventually doing that you meet most of the people up here but it would range it would be like great barrington saugerties even rosendale like all these different towns would have artist spaces that you would commute to just to have some community and in doing that, though, I met, I, I feel like working and really working the road and like going on the road like that, I met a great, wonderful community of serious artists up here, but it took work. It wasn't as easy as being in Brooklyn. You know, it's so funny you say that because sometimes um, in New York, I feel like, you know, the average commute, I feel like anywhere is 45 minutes. Like I just, you know, I'm like, Oh, I, it'll just probably take me about 40 minutes to get anywhere. And I live yeah. pretty centrally located in Brooklyn. But when you go outside the city, it's like no big deal to drive an hour and a half to go to an artist run space. It's like, it's, it's normal. It's almost like an hour and a half is equal to like the 45 minute commute in New York city or something. Not to I, say you should drive an hour and a half, but. I would say that people here, I think the cutoff is like an hour, like. Like most, I think, I think I might've been in like got a little bit of an exception. I think most people would probably not have driven that far. Like, I think even now people are like, they'd rather 30 minutes is a good marker, but if it's like an hour or more, they're like, whoa, that's far. But to me, I feel like I'm a trucker now. I feel like I'm, I was already driving back to the city a lot and I was just, you know, really leaning into the whole driving life, hashtag driving life. And <laughs> you can put like your audiobook on, you have your own little chamber, you're in control of your own destiny. And it's a beautiful area. So you're like appreciating the fall foliage. Um, and you know, it's 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 a little nerve-wracking to drive that far when you're gonna go to an opening where you don't know nobody. You like you literally know no one in there. <laughs> That's like a tricky that was one of the things where. I was inspired to read that book, How to Work a Room, because I would go into these openings and I might know one person. I think I think one time I went in and I saw at Jeffrey Young space in Great Barrington, I saw Dee Shapiro in the corner and I was like, oh, my God, thank God Dee's here. So I didn't know anybody else. And I would just like cling to Dee. And then as I knew Dee, uh, then Dee, you know, obviously Dee cannot babysit me the whole night. Then I'd, I'd make new friends through that little point of contact. But there have been times I tried to do that with knowing no one in the room and that was even harder. So um, it was, you know, the Brooklyn life was not the same. Like you, you could pretty much feel secure that you would see your friends somewhere, but this was literally starting from scratch. So it was, but now I feel pretty confident if I went somewhere, I'd know at least one or two people, you know, so that was good. Totally. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm such a big fan of your work and I'm really excited to talk about your work and your process. And I think one of the first things I think about with your work is, wow, it's really sincerely strange. Um, and I know we were chatting about this before. It's really difficult to feel like work is is like 
is not sensible. Um, and I think that there's a level of specificity in your paintings that I'm really drawn to in terms of mark making and the parts where like the body is included, but then dissolves. And so, yeah, I mean, like, each piece really takes me on a, a real specific journey. And so I'm curious for you, just very simply, like, how is your, how do you begin a work? How do you begin a painting or work on paper? Let's just stick for 2D for now. Uh, yeah, I, I tend, I do different ways. Um, I, I went through a really strong period of artist block. And although I'm not blocked now, I'm in constant terror of becoming artist. <laughs> so I cultivate, I cultivate methods of kind of almost like armor of never, I'm sure I'll get it again, but I try to cultivate methods of never getting artist block again. And so through, through doing that, I start works in all different ways, just in case one day I get blocked in one way, I have all the other ways. So for example, one way is like a doodle painting, which is where you start with no plan. It's just a white canvas and nothing matters. You're just going to doodle on it and see what happens. Maybe you do an underpainting and like drawing from imagination, you see a shape start to form by accident and you use that as your springboard. And then it's like call and response, like erasing, sublimating parts and elevating things. Or um, sometimes in the middle of a painting, I'll, you know, do a podcast and that'll inspire me to try out a new idea. Like um, with Elizabeth Condon, she's usually bringing up because her expertise is in Chinese art and mm -hmm. the idea of like having something empty that's not empty, that empty space could be like a mycelium and just like a mycelium is a network of potential from the mycelium mushrooms could sprout, but the mycelium itself is invisible. Similarly, in Chinese art, a blank space is like a mycelium. It's a place full of potential, but nothing is really sprouted. And mm -hmm. that was, um, you know, once I like once I heard that concept, it just got me thinking about that, about the potential of empty space. And um, mm -hmm. could I lean into that more? But then other ways I, besides the doodle works, I do digital phone app drawings with my phone, uh, with my finger. And mm -hmm. then I can kind of crudely just sort of like daydream. I'll be watching TV or maybe I'm on vacation when we're at the table and everybody's having a tense conversation, maybe about something. I'll just be doodling on my phone. It's available. It's simple. And I'll find myself just subconsciously making imagery without you know editing myself because it's to me digital phone drawings in my work aren't destined for the gallery you know like they're just they're they stay in this ether they stay in this no man's land of non-art so they don't feel precious they don't feel important and it feels like you can you know take a risk and a lot of my process is about trying to evade my fear and evade my feeling of being an artist with a capital A. So a lot of times I make my doodles or even acrylic on paper, I'll do images either based on the doodles or um, just doodle, you know, doodle based in front of the TV because nothing feels serious in the living room. Like things feel like cozy in the living room. You know, you're watching like a murder mystery and, you know, it doesn't feel like a serious art space and so I feel like I'll be way more radical in that space than I would 
than I would in my studio. And so in the living room, I have this enormous basket full of everything. It's getting out of control. It's teetering (laughs) about to fall over, but it's like paper, acrylic paper, but also like acrylic prime paper, but also drawing paper and all my watercolor brushes. I have acrylic wash now and all these acrylic tubes and a scanner and all this stuff in there that's just ready to go. And then I just swipe off the whole coffee table, pull out all these little pieces of paper and make stuff. And I find that I'll really take chances that way. I think if I'm in, I struggle sometimes being in the studio, being as free in my mind. I'm just trying to keep like the freest mind possible. Mm. Um, And then also just kind of coming to grips with what works for me. I feel like I hate linen, but linen works for me. And linen is nothing but a battle and it's expensive and it feels pretentious, but it's the place I make the best work. It works with me. Um, Obviously, if it's a big painting, I'm going to use canvas. But with linen, it's just it just works with you. Everything it's kind of like it's it's trying to be beautiful instead of canvas where I feel like I'm sort of trying to um, stamp, put my stamp on it. The linen is trying to be beautiful so you can really work with that. So I've been just accepting that a little bit and stretching a lot of stuff with linen. Um, But yeah, just call and response. And also I've come from this past of working with landscape for 25 years. And so I was glazing. I would do glaze after glaze after glaze. I kind of would build an image in a certain system. So it's pretty much exhilarating to do all these new ways. Like I don't have to do glazing anymore. I could do a thick, crusty surface, which I've never let myself do. I could, I could paint the whole thing out white and and paint on top of it. I could, you know, I could build it up from whatever color I, I could, you know, it's just like, I could, I could also change the framing. Like it's a rectangle, but I could, I could make it into, um, I could paint like a, an interior circle and make a different shape. I could, invent something and then react to that and I'm not working from observation and so it's just this like kid in a candy store like you're you're just like there's no rules (laughs) and there's no there's no uh, technique that I'm actually like you know I'm also like drawing the figure which I haven't done in 30 years so it's like how do I draw a foot how does one draw a foot do I even remember how to draw a foot like what about a hand like that is so (laughs) crazy to think about somebody who's just drawn trees <laughs> like for yeah. 30 years it's just like I could draw a tree like nobody's business but like I so I was but the thing is like when you go anytime you've done the figure in the past your eye remembers what the right look is even if your hand doesn't so you could it might take you 30 tries to draw that foot but your eye will recognize it when it's right or it just has to be good enough. It has to be like a good enough foot <laughs> to pass muster, like to not be yeah. a distraction. <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting what you said about, so I have two things, but I think it's interesting what you said about that your eye could recognize something in your hand. Maybe won't remember it quite as well at first. And I think that like connection between what our hand can do and wants to do versus what our eye, um, which usually like, I don't know, is linked to sort of, knowing about how things should look a perceived idea that there's often a disconnect and like so sometimes we could draw a tree you know and our hand would 
look deeply and like try to observe a contour line. But then our brain, our eye, would register it as a perceived failure or not accurate based off of a whole bunch of different systems and rules that we've been taught. And so it also sounds like after listening to you that you really don't like being told what to do or like that you don't have, like you don't want to have this super academic or professorial sort of relationship to the arts that like finding is really important to you in your own specific way. Like even the way you talked about your studio setup, that you needed to create a space that was more free than the studio, which I think is great. Um, So it's interesting the way that like we as artists battle our proclivities, our tendencies, like the way that our hand can naturally do a thing so beautifully. And then the way that we have to combat that with, you know, the way that our eyes can then register it based off of a bank of information on, you know, usually the Western canon or something like that on how things should look. Um, So I guess that wasn't a question, but those are just two things I was thinking about when you were explaining. But, you know, Donna Nelson talks about how studio intelligence is, um, studio spatial intelligence is like as important as anything else. So meaning the way you set up your space. I really love to hear that you have so many different ways to avoid kind of getting quote unquote stuck. And that like play is so central to your practice, if you will, or your making. So it sounds like you're always like really forward thinking. Um, Have you always been like that with your work? Like if you think about like just grad school after, like, I mean, is that something you've really developed over time? Like the sort of flexibility and ninja like moves to kind of, you know, succeed uh, in making the work that you want to make? Or did you um, kind of always have that like flexibility? No, I feel like I had, well, in grad school, I was making some crazy stuff for sure, but I was working with symbols and characters in that in that situation, but eventually I kind of, I had done landscape in high school and I felt like it was a form of self-portraiture for me. And then I went back to it after grad school. And I think I spent a lot of time like refining my practice, trying to get my content to come through and it got very refined. And so ultimately it got very rigid too. Like I feel like I got stuck in a track And it almost felt like I didn't have permission to change in my own head. Like I couldn't change or how, how, you know, it felt impossible to change. And so I tried every self-help book in the nation, in the land. I just needed somebody in my ear to just be like, change is okay. Keep trying. You know, you, you can do, you know, I just needed that. And I would feel my nerves slipping, like my nerve would start to to fray and I would just make contracts with myself. Like you need to finish this work no matter what. Like, even if you feel like it's the dumbest thing you've ever made and it probably is, you have to finish it or like a, a contract that like you at least have to work on this one hour. And so it was just a very um, fraught, like a really, I wasn't always free and I felt very locked in. And I think also reading the um, that the Philip Gustin account of his change, how he felt he couldn't sleep, he felt nauseous. He was going from his house to his studio over and over, saying like the new work's dumb, the old work's better, the old work's dumb, the new work's better, and putting things up and taking things down. And I really related to his struggle to break free because that was 
you know, in a smaller way, because obviously, you know, he's an artist of the canon, I felt, oh, this normalizes it. This is what it's like. This is just like this great artist went through this harrowing period where he was using like heavy drinking to get through it, basically. <laughs> and I was using self-help audiobooks, but like they're probably equal in the terms of like their their <laughs> like damaging qualities because the self-help books are pretty narcissistic too. But it normalized it for me. Like it's it is scary. It is hard. It, it does feel impossible. And and when I read his account, he said he had to consider himself like dead and reborn. And that he would now, as a reborn artist, he had this, like, I forget what it was, but it was like this marvelous sense of irresponsibility. So all that heaviness, that kind of like, you're a successful artist, you're the cool guy in the abstract expressionist movement with the career and William de Kooning's coming to your opening and like that kind of level. Um, all of his friends were having museum retrospectives and he just was like, to turn away from that and like all those stakes, it it was like made you nauseous and it made me feel like, oh, okay, yeah, this it's supposed to be like this. Uh, obviously, if it's hard for Gustin, it's going to be ten times. You know, it's going to feel worse for me because at least he knew he could kind of. I don't know. Maybe he didn't. I think his best friend even hated it. Uh, so he he struggled and he 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 lived down the road in Woodstock. So I felt a little bit more like a companionship with with his dead ghost. But yeah, but yeah so it wasn't, it, I feel now um, like a, a mentor for me is Judy Glantzman, the artist. And mm -hmm. she has amazing, cool artist block blockers. And I really took those into to heart. And I think that helped me identify that um, after years of doing that sort of similar work, what I really wanted was... Uh, surprise is the prize surprise was the prize I wanted to feel not in control I wanted to feel out of control I wanted to feel like things were emerging that would surprise me that I couldn't predict just just like it felt when I did collage but collage became slightly a little bit of a crutch for me because you can always collage your way out of something but to not let yourself collage for a bit and try to solve it in painting only was a good challenge for me and I think that's been helpful Totally. You know, I think about the relationship of processes um, that artists have to to like their emotional state a lot. Like I think if I look back on my experience is that there's been some years where I've been really interested in finding and like really rejecting ideas of like having a set of systems and all of that. And then there's times where I really need a system and I really need to know the task at hand. And I find that when I, what I observe in other people, and also if I look back on myself, that a lot of those uh, decisions formally on process and how to and how to begin and, you know, just like the steps to do the art um, have a lot to do with where people are in life. Like, I think it's not talked about enough, but like this idea of control or knowing or finding all of these like sort of larger, more ephemeral ideas um, in the studio are sometimes like re reactions or rejections from one's experience. So I guess I'm wondering, was there ever a time that you really wanted to have like a really, is there any part of your practice that has a little bit of control in it? I guess is a better question. For sure. Like, I think that was one thing I wanted to mention that 
because I switched from observational painting to almost like working from imagination, you need to have some sort of a framework. And my framework, I'm sure you can relate to, is symbols. And so I have a list of symbols that kind of emerged from working with sculpture. They just kind of came out through the sculptures and I keep a list. And so it's sort of like I'm a director and I'm putting on these plays. And so I have my actors and I think, oh, I'll write this play for my Meryl Streep or, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? But oh, I, I have, that. you know, I have like my, like my symbols, like the Aang eyes or the blockhead figure or clouds or um, the, yeah. the single tree, those sort of symbols are, are characters. So they, it's not really just starting from scratch. I mean, when I say a doodle painting, it's not like I'm, you know, I mean, maybe I should be, but it's not like I'm going in there and just drawing like a pickup truck. Like I'm, I'm definitely starting from my symbols and then the symbols yeah. react to each other. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I was so curious. Can you talk about the origin of the blockhead um, sort of symbol or figure? Like, yeah. How did that come about? It was so wild. I, I had this collage that is not even that good a collage, but it's like a forest waterfall I made when I was at the Salton stall uh, residency in Ithaca. And there's like a figure, it's just a scrap of paper on the bottom right. And it has these sort of Rorschachy blue prints on it that look sort of like eyes, eyes. And then it has a little like blobby little body, but the head is like a pale yellow block. And the bottom is like peach, a little blobby body. And then it has these like blue sort of quasi abstracted, maybe eye shapes, like as if you were looking at an emoji or something, you're not sure. And it, even though the collage itself is a bit disjointed, I, I really thought that that area had power. And when I was trying to broaden my, um, my characters, I, I used that little section of the collage and spooled it out and thought, let me take that out and give it legs, let it walk around. Um, and then from painting it into scenes and, and scenarios, it be, took on a life of its own. And then I had this, um, to me, a shocking revelation. I was like a couple summers ago and in grad school, I had really worked, like I said, in grad school, I went a little wild, <laughs> but I had painted this painting by Aang, the princess of Berkeley because the eyes in that painting remind me of my mother. So anytime I would paint it, my mother would be there almost like in this sort of aura. And it was a very spooky woo woo thing. And I hadn't worked with that obviously for 30 years. And, you know, not everybody's like, yeah, let's do more paintings about, you know, my mom, <laughs> like, not everybody's like that. And, but then I realized that the, the shape, the collage shape with the blue quasi eyes was actually an abstraction of that face. And and yeah. it was um if you lay it over the the face, it's like the eye and the the shadow of the long nose, and then the little eye on the on the edge of the face. And so it was a, just this real shock, the way that your subconscious can can act through your work that that you that you didn't even intend it. And all of a sudden you're just recognizing something on a primal level working with this symbol. And then it occurs to you, oh my God, this blockhead is also the Aang and the Aang is back. And you might as well just buckle up because the Aang is going to be in the work now. <laughs> so, so I've been kind of um, using them interchangeably. I think they're sort of the same, but I think in a lot of ways, I like that they're like maps without keys. 
the works develop meaning, but it's not architected meaning. You don't mm -hmm. intend the meaning and the meaning just sort of comes. And that's the magic of, I think, art in general, that through making you develop meaning, but you don't control. It's not like a direct one-to-one -one, and that's the magic of it. And I think that's what keeps us all invested in it because it's it's such a, a almost like a spiritual experience making mm -hmm. making art. And and then another symbol is um, there's a a tree that I found that's you know this sort of dead tree with a central knot and a triangular head, and I saw it on a hike once, and I I consider it like the penultimate tree like like of all my years of landscape I'm like this one's the best this tree is the best it gets the trophy, and I just started making these silly little sculptures with it like imagining its life outside of the hiking trail like. What if it fell and it was, you know, laid to rest, you know, or what if it was being carried by another tree like a pieta or what if it was under a rain cloud, you know, or just these kind of funny scenarios and it uh, became this symbol and I just kind of use it all the time. And I, again, I can't say exactly what it means. It's a map without a key, but somehow they, the pieces have meaning. And so I just keep uh, using it. It feels like personal, but I'm not sure why or how. Oh, it's totally personal. And it's also so wonderful to hear how those developments arrived and then how they sort of continue to arrive without the sort of preconceived idea of planning. I mean, it just goes to show you, like, I think the making, the making is the thinking. And I think like, this idea of of knowing is is fine and one can like desire to have certain knowings but i think beliefs or certain certain cravings and desires that come from the gut or um come from a place that doesn't have language is is really what art what art's value is and where where the sort of magic is where people keep coming back to it after all of these years you know like all of these inventions of more efficient ways to digitize or to communicate there is still this um, magical part of 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 belief or of the gut that comes from art, and it's actually really really wonderful inability to be described. And um, I was listening to an Agnes Martin video the other day with my students at Pratt, and there's this wonderful line where she's like, you know, there's like five publications at the time in 2007. There's like five or six publications that come out a year or come out a week about art. And, you know, there's just nothing you can say. And I just thought, like, it's so uh, it was so wonderful. It's like so extreme. Um, but anyway, I mean, this idea that it's all really connected, whether or not the language is there before or after is, is I think we all know that, you know, I don't think that's anything to debate. And I think what's so exciting about one of the things that's really exciting to me about your paintings is. And I'll maybe explain this if it's needed. But um, what I appreciate about your paintings is that there's multiple like paint registers going on at once, meaning like faculties or ways to describe information. So like if I'm looking at um, Bended Figure and Ang's Eye, it's a great painting. Um, what I appreciate about that painting is the sort of, you know, the way that compositionally it like glides me around the painting. It sort of is a form within a form. But you have this like real level of specificity with that like light pink hand that's kind of like jutting in and out of the figure foreground relationship. And I can just tell it was all made 
from feeling and from this sort of movement. But you have this level of transparency and this also this level of specificity in that painting. And I think a lot of your paintings really do that well. So how do you know in your paintings, because um, there is a really wonderful pendulum. If you look at your work, there's these parts that are almost like they look like they could have been finger painted or sanded. And then there's these other parts that are just a different register. They're, they're a different pace. They're also a different wrist move and they're a different brush. Um, and so I really appreciate that flexibility and that range. And I think that adds more and more uh, specificity to these paintings, which are actually, you know, very open. So what, how do you know which parts need that extra or that sort of different register? Is it always the same parts? Is it always the eye? Or is it always like, um, yeah, how, how do you know what part to go in and give that different um, attention to? I mean, I feel like with portraiture, which is basically what I'm doing with the Aang, because I'm trying to recreate this painting, but it's a person in the painting. So it's basically a portrait. And I don't know if you remember this, but when I was in high school, I would keep all these journals and you probably did too. But sometimes if you just scribble enough with a ballpoint pen, the person's face will just emerge. And it's a more faithful representation of their face than if you tried to really draw it from memory. There's something about like the scribbling that accesses a deeper knowledge or deeper memory of the brain, I think, like. I'm not sure it felt magical. I don't know, but I feel like I treat the Aang that way where I know if I just paint enough and I let the paint tell me where, what, what it is like sometimes they'll, because I'm trying to get an aura of my mother from it weirdly. So I'm painting this portrait in order to get this aura. So I'll feel the aura and then I'll know I got to knock it. I got to lock that in because that's the whole goal of that area. But then other other parts of the paintings, I'm very interested in um, Via Selman's stars. <laughs> if you you probably know her work really well, it's, you know, just the star field she did uh, with graphite. And she would meticulously create these star fields and keep the stars blank paper. So she would like religiously not erase and that was sort of like this meditative way of making a drawing in it. And it embedded that richness into the work when you experience it. And I like the idea of doing via Selman stars. So I, when I paint, I usually do that, like leave holes where the stars should be. So I kind of like honor her in a weird way. But also like, I think I do stars because I'm also, you know, the James Webb telescope was such a big deal for our, our time just these revelations and how they put everything on its ear that we knew and and seeing these crazy images of every you know week or so of new of new galaxies or being able to see that far back it just really captured my imagination and it started me thinking about multiverses and how you know um again with the podcast I think I interviewed a choreographer Julia Gleick and she was saying that she composes the dance stage with little universes in it. So she'll do a circle of flowers and the dancer will dance inside that circle and they're in a new world. And I thought of the stage as a, a painting rectangle and how, you know, you could create different universes and multiverses on a stage. And so sometimes the podcast bleeds into the work like that. But in terms of 
the other ways I create line and and texture, I think it's literally just um, bursting free from uh, working in a certain way for so long. I'm just like, get me all the brushes. I want all the different sizes. I'm going to be, should I be adding modeling paste? What what next? You know, like, what could I get away with? Like, what could I do a thin terpy painting? Could I make a painting that's just drawing? Could I, you know, make the thickest thing I could find? Can I just leave it like that? Like all these sort of like feelings of freedom, I think also drive some of the, some of the decisions in the work. Totally. Well, you have a lot of tools, you know, a lot of options. And I think that that's one of the things is having that like flexibility, but also that dexterity to, you know, module, like to sort of switch gears, um, both formally and sort of like technique, but also materially. So I think that that, you know, that's hard earned over time, but it's also a really cool, it's a really great way to think about information in painting or drawing and seeing in painting or drawing or you know the differences between depicting and feeling um like that's a really big distinction this idea of like that I will show you something or that I'll tell you something um I think about that idea a lot in art and in writing this idea of showing not telling and I think that 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 translation happens also in visual art so I also noticed too that you make sculptures, which I love. I love your sculptures. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and it seems, and I loved how you talked about your figures being like characters or like they're now ready for like their scene or their their kind of moment. Um, and you know, how how do you how do you see the sculptures? Uh, is it similar um in terms of character development or sort of relationship to form? And yeah, how did you start making these sculptures? Like, was that something that's fairly new for you or something you've always kind of done? Definitely new. I, I, my friend, Amy Finkbinder had done Sculpey in grad school. So I like this home craft clay called Sculpey that you bake in your oven. And she had made these great, like kind of creepy goth sculptures out of them. And it had all just been in my, you know, my field of vision because we were close and I would see her work all the time, but I never thought of myself as a sculptor. Like I said, I was in this really rigid track of my own making and it would never have occurred to me to make sculpture or do so once I was already like kind of bursting free by doing collages I started doing these low pressure sculpies in the house and you know I know the artist Sherry Mendelssohn she does like you know home craft plastic bottles into Greek sculptures and so once you know other people are kind of doing uh, cool things with home craft and it makes it more permissible. Like, well, she's making her work at, you know, from these sort of recyclable scraps and shopping at Michael's, you know, to get her, her special glue gun stuff. Then it feels like, oh, I can, you know, it's okay for me too. And um, I think I was invited to be in an outdoor sculpture show from a friend who likes to challenge people who don't work in sculpture to kind of spread their wings, uh, Courtney Puckett. And I was like, ooh, and all of a sudden I just had this idea, like, what if I just did that tree from the hike and reproduced the head part of it and made a little group of them on, on the ground? I could just do air dry clay or Sculpey, something easy to, to buy. And then she she kind of, at the time, she was like, you know what, I, we actually might not do the show. And I thought, I had a moment where I was like, am I going to keep pursuing this, you know, without this sort of deadline? And I just kept going. I was like, well, okay, we got this, we got this tree. 
And what am I going to do? And I collect these weird things called spill vases, which are um, antique Victorian Staffordshire. I guess they're sort of por- painted porcelain or something, but they go on a mantle. And I was listening to a lot of mysteries, Agatha Christie, and there's one story on the mysterious affair at Styles, where Hercule Poirot, the detective, finds the torn up will inside a spill. And of course, then, as we do, I Googled, what is a spill? And this whole world opened up. It was just weird, bizarre forms. It would be this tall, conical shape that was full of vermilion inside that looked like an esophagus, like a freestanding esophagus. And then around it, we'd be decorated with like little sheep or like lovers picnicking or like a swan. And they were just the most outrageous things you've ever seen. And the, their purpose was to hold these little coils of wood you would use to get your candle lit from the fireplace. So you wouldn't stick your candle in the fireplace and there were no matches. So you would take this little delicate piece of wood, light it and walk around the room and light all your candles. And those were called spills. And so everyone, every home needed it. And the vermilion, I think, inside the tube is to connote fire or like where things are that are hot. And I was fascinated by them. And, you know, they're like usually between, you know, they're like $50. So I buy one a year on eBay and I probably mostly have fakes. I don't probably have the real ones, but I just kind of line them up on my mantle and marvel at their bizarreness. And while I was in that very open period, I thought, well, I could make the tree but I could also marry it with my other love, spill vases. <laughs> and then it just became a form to create this. It became a former stage on which to create the, the play. So the spill vase is the structure. And on the spill vase, the tree can, you know, lie, you know, flop down, you know, af- after having fallen. Um, it can, you know, little symbols of the head could decorate the form in almost like a you know, an American Indian sort of or Native American art kind of way. Um, You could decorate it with little lakes or like little trees, uh, put a little sheep in there, flowers, and just have them all interact in this really strange way. And a lot of the spills, uh, the spill bases, they're they're made into trees. So it's kind of an easy, but it just ended up being really fun to make my own spill bases and then make them the stage set for these, this, this passion play of this one single tree. And it just became so ridiculous. And every time I would finish one, I would just die laughing alone. Like it would just be like cackling alone in my studio. <laughs> and, you know, it was pointed out to me that that's not a bad thing. That like, if that's where you're finding your fun and your joy, like that's kind of what you should be maybe uh, focusing on. Uh, so, and oh, then, um, you know, I kept, I kept making them, but I, but I felt really blocked in my painting and I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't paint. And I think once I realized I could, I could lower all the gates, the sculptures and the paintings could be one unit and they can flow in between each other. And I had seen this, um, Matisse show at the MoMA, which was called the Red Studio. And it, it had the the painting of the Red Studio, but it had all the objects that were in the painting also displayed and just seeing the little sculpture of a figure in front of the painting of the little figure, it felt like time traveling. It felt like you were kind of connected to the painting in this like almost real way. Like you felt like you you were holding, you could see the object. So you were like inside the painting and the painting felt 
like alive in a different way. And, you know, I'm also a fan of Betty Woodman. So it's just sort of this idea of having this painting sculpture communication seemed exciting. I love that. Thank you. Um, I love how this one, you get so much mileage out of forms. I think that's something that's really strong about your work is that you really can transform a form, right? Or a shape, if you will, in many different ways. And I think that's actually really hard to do. And so in this way with your really personal, but art historical and sort of sensory framework that you've built for yourself, you've got you've got like a million options. And this is something I think about a lot, like with just myself, but with teaching and stuff. And I'm always saying, you know, commitment really sets you free. And I think this idea that you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once is another thing. Um, but in art, a lot of times, you know, this idea of decision-making can be one of the elements of paralysis for people. And so I really appreciate how you've taken a few specific forms and really let them be autonomous and live in a different way. So when I look at all your sculptures, you know, it just feels like it's a wonderful conversation between friends. And particularly, I was laughing a little bit while you were chatting or talking about your work. Um, the piece Rain Cloud is so funny. <laughs> and I love that you laugh by yourself when you make work. And I think that should be the goal. Like one of the, you know, I don't know. It just feels like the world and life is so hard. So like you should, you should really love what you're doing. And, and even if it's like embarrassing, I think that that's maybe the, the best situation that your work is, is, um, is so felt that way. Um, but again, you know, everyone works differently and, you know, everyone's art has a different purpose and stuff, but I really appreciate that. But one, one thing, speaking of embarrassing, one thing I, I think about sometimes is though, although I stand behind the work of the last 25 years and I love it, it was in a way bulletproof. Um, it, 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 it hung its hat on skill. It had a, a high finish. It was skilled. It was, you know, well-made and it was accessible. Um, landscape, I think has potential to be really eccentric and weird like Charles Birchfield, but ultimately you could speak any language, be from any time of life, any time of history and appreciate it. So it has this wonderful accessibility. And so in a lot of ways, it makes it bulletproof because the worst critique you can get kind of get is, you know, oh, you over overdid it or you overfinished it. Um, working this way has been a revelation because it is embarrassing. I feel embarrassed. I feel silly. I feel goofy. Like, you know, it, like it, it curdles your blood sometimes to imagine what you made, like look over. But I think, um, but I think it's, it's better to not be bulletproof. It's better to, to be more at risk. I think, you know, you have more, more at stake and, and it opens you, it opens you up to a little bit to more, more comments that I wasn't really ready for. Sometimes most people have been super supportive and, and really into the new change, but, you know, occasionally you, you get a weird comment and, um, and 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 they're more diverse, you know, like, and uh, it's been an adjustment. I think anyone who's been working with, you know, putting themselves out there, like probably you also relate that you don't know what people are going to say. You you can't predict it. It's not like before I could kind of, I knew, I knew the worst that could happen, but, but now it's, it's a lot more, a lot more risky. And, and I, I like the idea though, though, of uh, focusing on process. And so the process is king. The product is not king. So you feel embarrassed and you feel worried 
and you feel anxious when you consider it as product. But if you think of it as process, you're just on a timeline moving forward and you're making things and learning and experimenting as you go. And that keeps you grounded, thinking of it as process for me. Totally. That's really well said. I think that should be valuable for anyone who hears it because that is like the, that's the constant issue of um, this idea of output versus thinking, um, you know, and so this is, this is one of my, my gripes or my things that I think about a lot is that like, you know, people are very focused on the product or how much you make or how much, you know, um, how much time you even spend on on making as a correlation to seriousness or commitment. That's another, that's a huge issue I have because it's just classist. But this idea of process as um, like the goal uh, also reflects this idea of learning as the essential question. You know, um, the thing that remains at the end is a wonderful amalgamation of process and experience and risk and all of these things and strategies. But, um, you know, I, I think that like, you know, to, to sort of give Donna Nelson another shout out, but um, in a wonderful lecture they gave a few years ago at the Vermont Studio Center, if you Google it, you can find a wonderful talk by Donna Nelson, but they, they kind of talk about how, um, you know, the best thing, the most important thing you can have as an artist is something you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is like such a gift that you're interested in something to begin and that you're also open to multiple processes or thinkings being, you know, really vulnerably shared and, you know, what it looks like at the end, right? Like going back to the hand and the eye conversation, what it looks like is then something we all have to evaluate and figure out how to decipher. But the most important thing is like that experience of making it feels kinetically true at the time or viscerally real or whatever you want to say but that is that that's the making like that's the most exciting part and whatever ends up it's like I don't know I mean I think you're responsible but I don't know how how responsible you are and then particularly not to always have to put language to it I think that's that's where a lot of artists can struggle is like this idea that I'm going to make sense of it and that also goes to like a huge issue of knowing or like that it has to make sense I think that's a really conservative idea that has overwhelmed the art market, art schools, that people are really worried about looking like they know what they're doing. And it's like, whoa, 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 you know, this whole process from the cave paintings to modernism and everything in between is about making and using your hands and learning. And, you know, of course, you know, that's not a bulletproof statement, but this idea of, um, of knowing feels like a really conservative idea. And I appreciate that your work sort of resists that final knowing, but really sort of strongly and delicately dances between, you know, strategies that are just you. Like, I don't know anyone painting Aang's eyes like that. (laughs) Like, these are really particular and specific. um, And I just, I really enjoy hearing about the way that you have learned to build this flexibility with process and with form. Thank you. I I do worry about, because, you know, you don't want to be the person just puts an eyeball on everything, (laughs) but they're so, it's so specifically creating my mother that it's like, it's so addictive, the magic of it. And I think I tried to do it with a drawing and the drawing didn't conjure her. And I think Mm -hmm. that's more interesting that, that it has to be paint. But, but when you're going back to what you're saying before about 
having to explain or make meaning. Um, I really think during this journey sort of of changing everything, I've kind of feel like, yeah, when I got out of school, I felt like we were being kind of taught to be market children, where we're sort of courting courting the approval and the accolades and the accomplishments, the out, outer accomplishments of the market. And, you know, I went to SVA and, you know, gallerists were coming to the open studios and people were getting plucked out and, and put in like the Whitney, you know, or, or getting big breaks. And I think even my time was like, you know, Dana Schutz got plucked out of the Columbia MFA. And it was just, it, it felt very much like market facing and um, felt like we were being groomed to be market children and what I'm trying to do is cure myself of that a little bit uh, like rewire my brain and become a source channeler which sounds a little bit like new agey <laughs> apologize but I'm trying to be a source channeler which kind of speaks to the idea of like that unpredictable magic that occurs without you meaning to. So it could be from my collage experience where that would happen a lot, or just the fact that the Aang painting creates my mother. That's a magical, weird thing that that is not, you know, it's not easy to speak about or really understand. I like the idea that there are processes at work that can't be understood. And in a way, you're just a channeler. You're channeling this sort of, maybe not source, but subconsciousness you're allowing that deep, deep, deep subconscious to come out and, and make itself visible in, in the work in some way without control. And I think that a market child is more in the grip of a controlled path. And so, I don't know, I, it's just a first idea and it probably sounds ho horribly new age, but it's kind of how I think to myself, like I'm, I'm curing myself from being a market child. I was groomed to be a market child, and now I'm moving into a source channeler, and it feels more mysterious, more magical, and more fulfilling. It sounds amazing. <laughs> um, and Thank you. it's very important, but it's very important for people to hear. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, what's the, there's so many things to say about it, but I think ultimately, um, I'm so excited by your work, and the work also feels so felt. and sort of like interconnected between time and space. And I also really just want to acknowledge that I appreciate you trying to conjure your mother or like source a certain feeling or likeness from, you know, an eye or a reference to it. I think that's wonderful. I don't know. Mothers are very important. So, I mean, I, I love to hear more about that. And, and I think the thing that's that artists have to do is like figure out the thing that they're they're kind of in love with and obsessed with. And I could never paint the eyes that you like, you know, it, it couldn't come from anywhere but you. And I think that's what's really exciting about your work. And your mention of Vija Selmas is also wonderful too, because the more and more I look at your work, I'm reminded about that idea of the night sky as such a wonderful surface or sort of um, reference to um, this interconnected atmospheric perspective that she did so beautifully, but you also do really beautifully. Yeah, I like, um, I just like little jokes. Like I like, I like a poignant joke. I don't necessarily, like it can just be funny, funny, but sometimes it's a poignant joke. And I just like thinking to myself, like, it's time for more Via Selman stars. And, you know, um, the, here comes my mom. <laughs> and it's just like, a, it's just, I think it's good to have that 
to just let it all in and and let it all play. And I think I I came from a place I had gotten myself into. I'm taking full responsibility. And also when I say market child, I'm not saying anything specific about like not wanting a gallery or people who show our market children. I'm not saying that at all. Of course, it's all an ecosystem that that helps the work get out. It's just a mindset. It's just about um, how do you make the most authentic raw work you can? And if you're thinking in your brain, how will this be perceived by the market? You won't, I don't think you'll achieve the same level of openness and honesty in your work. You'll self-censor, I think. That's what yeah, and at, at the very least, it's just more difficult. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's also just the basic reality. Um, you know, and it's just coming from a different place of like, what's the expectation versus what's the desire? Anyway, it's, a, it's such an interesting thing to think about with, with work and with our lives as artists, but I love this idea of being a source. What did you say? A source? You're a source channeler. Source channel. Yeah, yeah. It sounds um, hopelessly new age. I love it. I think we need that. <laughs> um, a source channeler who does want to show in galleries and museums, but yeah, is yeah. just using that way of thinking as a mindset in the studio to to be brave enough to risk embarrassment, risk change, risk you know, really showing their true self. That's kind of the idea. Yeah, totally. And I think that's really important. And that's, that's, that's political in a sense, this idea of like resistance as trying to embrace that. And there's no, you know, these things are not mutually exclusive. One can have a certain philosophy or tendency or studio framework that best suits their temperament. And they can also, of course, have different levels of varied success or whatever that definition means. So it's not one or the either for anybody. And I think, you know, it's clear that you know that, um, but it's working for you. So I really am so excited about your work. Um, and one other thing I noticed about your work that I wanted to ask you about was it seems like there's also, there's a few pieces that use the eyes as a sort of, I don't want to say mask, but like these floating sort of like you really divide the distinction of the face in this wonderful ethereal way. And I'm assuming that comes from the processes that we've just described, but it also seems like you place them underneath objects or totems or a beautiful line drawing in the painting cloud after Ang. And so, you know, that associative quality of these ethereal Ang eyes that reference your mother being paired with another form you know, what does that mean to you or how do you decide those positions or the figures that you're going to put in relationship to these floating mask eyes, if you will? I mean, that idea of having a cloud, eyes in a cloud came out from the digital doodles where it felt like silly and fresh and who cares and I'm watching TV and whatever and just making this ridiculous thing. And then, and then all of a sudden it became almost like we were just talking about Edvard Munch and his repetition with the woodcut. He would reproduce the woodcut in many different color variations. And similarly, I was like, the Aang eyes in a cloud could be then reproduced in the same size painting and, and with a spill vase below. And then, and then it starts to feel like genie in a bottle because the spill vase has almost like this long necked esophagus. And, and it was just, a random digital doodle. And then you're just like, well, I better make it. And then you make it and you think this is never going to work out. And then all of a sudden 
the Aang eyes come to life. It's my mother. <laughs> it's in the cloud. And it just sort of works. And then the next one I did is it's like I ended up um, making this the center spill hole, which is usually vermilion pitch black and and the way it acted felt like this like black hole or it sucked in light it was the black was so black so it's just like wow that's that was interesting and then the next one I did very sketchy and loose and I did the the cloud over the actual ang drawing the body of the full lady and um the way it came out is that the eyes looked like they're closed but open at the same time so like the pupil is painted so subtly and the same tone as the whites of the eye that it looks like it's closed but then out and there's something really fun to me about something having two states at once um could something look like it's falling or still on a table at the same time um could the eyes be open or closed at the same time and and i remember finishing that cloud and just feeling like i was gonna like cry or something it was just the weirdest experience i felt like why am I feeling like I need to cry? Um, but I just thought, you know, that's that's what that painting needed to be. It's sort of this like really prioritizing the feeling over the craft, I guess. So like if the feeling is there and potent, it could be a laugh, it could be embarrassment, it could be crying, it could be anything. If that feeling is there, then that has to be, you know, honored and and then maybe maybe even walk away and maybe be okay with that because it's a process it's a process-based practice now mm -hmm. so right. it's sort of a ludicrous thing it, it, like I I like to think sometimes like when we were talking about you know do things have to make sense like it's a map without a key and I can tell the story about the the digital doodle and the clouds but why why am I making it I don't know it just sort of like it's all kind of random but silly and it's a map without a key and maybe that's okay. Maybe it's mm -hmm. okay to have a map without a key. Well, maybe it also, wherever it leads you is the end point who knows, but I mean, that experience or that, that, that journey is, is interesting right now to you and also what you need, you know, and also too, all of your, you know, wonderful skills you've honed over the years, like your representational qualities, if you will, you know, they're, they're substantial and they they get flexed really strong in this new work in this way where I can see like a deafness of line and a really wonderful sense of random volumetric logic underneath an undulating blob that like I don't know where it came from. So I really think like all of the things in your life that I can see anyway have this really important faculty in your current work. And I think that dexterity and that flexibility and that history is super important. You know, you couldn't make this work if you didn't make the previous work. And, you know, this idea of, you know, knowing or understanding what the endpoint might be, that it makes sense, that it has a sense of rational space or light, shape, shadow, and form, all very important. And like, there's nothing against any kind of work that does that. But what's great about your, your new work is that it feels so felt and it's also inventive. It's incredibly collaborative. And I think that's really exciting. And, you know, people just when they look at your archive or look at your previous work and then look at this, you know, there's so many connections to. Oh, do you think um, so? Because I, totally. I never know how, how it's perceived. I mean, but like in the end, it's like people are going to perceive different things. I just know I can see a sensibility of formal solutions that have a lot of experience in your older work that are 
you know, really quite formal and quite beautiful that appear in like 10% of a new work at the most random time, which is why they all have a really strong, I don't want to say reinforcement value, but experiential quality where there's, again, there's different registers going on of pain application. And I think that that level of specificity is really um, important in the viewing. I only need to look at so many wonderful tree paintings, you know, there's only so much I can get out of that. Although maybe someone would disagree with that. But for me, I'm like, okay, there is this interesting thing about your work where it goes in and out of knowing it goes in and out of like, I want to say consciousness. And that happens through the formal and you couldn't have done any of that if you didn't put in all that work to do whatever. And, you know, who knows what it'll be like in 10 years, but what's exciting is that you're really following this, this, this guttural uh, belief and wanting to make work this way. And I think it really shows. Um, Thank you so much. We've mm-hmm. talked about how drawing is such a bedrock. Yeah. Like totally. feeling a form with your hands mm-hmm. when you're doing observational drawing, like just feel like if you're drawing a cow skull, like just feeling that feeling of the skull, like mm-hmm. feeling that surface, like almost empathically or something while you're drawing. And then you're drawing something from your imagination. You still want to feel it, even if you're not really looking at anything. You still want to mm-hmm. feel that feeling of the line, a meaningful line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm curious, do you have a favorite studio snack? Okay. <laughs> um, I often enjoy a Cheez-It. Um, I also like a raw almond. And I'm rarely without a diet. I mean, uh, I'm rarely without an iced coffee. I love all of those answers. Um, (laughs) Do you listen to music or podcasts in the studio? Well, my favorite podcast is called Las Culturistas, um, which is Bo and Yang and Matt Rogers. They kind of talk about pop culture and they have this beautiful friendship. And I love that podcast. So if that's come out, that's what I'm listening to. But if it's not, they only come out once in a while. So then I'll usually listen to like audiobooks. I still love mysteries. And do you know that Agnes Martin listened to, or she read Agatha Christie while she was out. And that was her favorite thing to read. Oh. And I love knowing what people like enjoy in their guilty pleasure. So like Rauschenberg liked the, uh, the Young and the Restless every day at like 1 p.m. in his studio in Captiva. I love people who have guilty pleasures and like make art the wrong way. Like I find that the best. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, years ago, we went to Kathy Bradford's studio with a class and she just admitted that she hates cleaning her brushes. So she just keeps them on buckets of water and <laughs> um, that's it. And so she just empties the water out and keeps them all submerged in water overnight. And then it's just faster and more efficient. And I always thought that was really liberating because you know, sometimes you can think you have to like clean up a certain way or just um, preserve things. And I think making those like, like those sort of um, decisions based off of like what you need at some point is becomes really important to just getting things done. Well, like you were saying, when I interviewed you about like, um, friction, frictionless being frictionless, like about like marathon training, like you would definitely make sure your shoes were by the bed and like, everything was ready and and your water bottle was ready to go so that you wouldn't get bogged down in the details and like lose your motivation to do the work. I think those little things like the brushes um, can help you if you're feeling like, oh, (laughs) because the truth is, if you just get out there and do it, like if you just go to the studio or 
you sit down on your sofa and work or you go jogging, you're going to feel like so happy. It's just, a, it's just the hurdle of getting there. Totally. And your, you know, your creation of this amazing podcast, Pep Talks for Artists, has been really helpful for so many people. Um, and I assume it's also acted like a wonderful way to make friends or connections and also learn. Um, you mentioned this a few times that you've just been inspired by certain conversations. So I love hearing that because it sounds like also just really helpful to, to you. And I know it's so helpful to so many people about transparency and art history and learning and contemporary art. So how are you feeling about your creation, Pep Talks for Artists? I mean, I definitely feel good. I feel like I make it for myself selfishly. And that when we did the clubhouse rooms, it dawned on Jennifer and me that there's no amount of vulnerability that was too much because everyone felt the same. Like you could say the craziest thing you ever thought of and somebody else would be like, oh yeah, me too. <laughs> and um, it, it was just this eye opener. And so I think that made me feel like with the podcast, if I am making these for myself, it's bound to also find resonance with others because we're all in it together. And I, I like to feel like, I like to feel in the mix. I like to hear people's ideas. I like to talk about art history. And I, I like to poke fun at mannerist Renaissance writers from 1500 with another artist or hear about Chinese art or talk about collage with somebody. Or even when we had our conversation, like talk, talk about giving yourself permission to not make sense. Or even just, you know, hearing that, you know, Sherry Mendelssohn, you know, Guggenheim winner is shopping at Michael's for glue sticks. Like everything just makes you feel like part of a community and that there's no rules and that you have permission to kind of like do anything. And that also like being curious, being intellectual, having fun. These are all great things. And you're allowed to enjoy that. Um, you don't have to always be obsessing about whether you've posted on Instagram enough. You know, it's it's really about a, building a life of curiosity. And and that's that's enough in a lot of ways. It's totally enough. In fact, it's like very, very important. <laughs> you know, and the, the more people that can champion that and be vulnerable or just share the, the ways in which they operate, the more liberating it can be. Um, and hopefully maybe in an ideal world, this can help the art that's being made or the sort of culture that's being produced that maybe it's not so fearful or so conservative or safe. You know, and I think that that kind of collective, I don't know, I don't want to say consciousness, but like this idea of like collectively sharing information and teaching from that perspective or caring about the art world from that perspective can add up. And, you know, maybe it will make for kinder work and maybe it will make for, uh, people to feel less lonely. And I don't, I don't know at this point, what's more important, you know, so I appreciate that. And I appreciate that you contribute to, to that. And I know that it helps people. So I think you're awesome, Amy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, I like contributing. I mean, I, I, I feel, I know that my contribution is quite small, but there's something about like, you know, I even listened to the Getty, the Getty had recorded um, Eva Hesse, and, you know, a few other women artists, and you could hear their accents, like their New York accents. You could hear them talking about their work and how precious it was to have a recording of these people in their own words. And like, even my own small way, like I've contributed an archive of recordings of women artists or, um, you know, I probably should have a more, you know, gender diverse program. I, I think next year I'll invite 
some male artists, <laughs> but but basically to have this archive of um, of people speaking about their work and archive of people who are willing to like source channel for a bit. Like, well, let's get into this, you know, show we all saw and let's really talk about it and, and not apologize for, you know, trying to geek out intellectually. And, and you're kind of, you kind of, um, in a very small way, you offer, you offer a oasis away from the, that intense market culture that I think we all got born into. Um, and I think people get, you know, just talking to other people, like people get a little weary because even if you did everything right and you, you checked off the list and you called all the curators, you, you know, had the perfect updated website, you did the Instagram, you, you, you had the great mailing list and you applied to everything and you did everything right. You still might not get the opportunity. And, and, and so a lot of times people, I think will internalize this feeling of failure all the time. But if you give this other, if you give this little respite, this little oasis where it's really just about pure curiosity and remembering why we all got into art in the first place, I think it can help a weary soul, hopefully. Totally. I agree, <laughs> Amy. Um, I have uh, one more question for you. What are you looking forward to, I don't know, with your work right now? Do you have any shows coming up or just um, specific studio time that you're excited about or a trip or, I don't know, new material? Is there anything that you're just really ready to um I think I feel like I'm really excited about the work I'm not sure about shows I think shows will come and there's already been something mentioned but I feel scared to even think about it I really try to I'm trying to stay processed so I'm excited about seeing like the sculptures evolve i'm i'm excited about what new paintings will reveal and like what they'll look like because god only knows what they'll look like um you know i'm excited about talking to to artists more on the podcast and just being curious and talking about intellectual things art history i know it seems kind of lame but I'm really just excited about the process continuing. That's not lame. That's the best <laughs> answer. I don't know. Like, I don't, you know, I don't, that's, that's just not lame. That's just like, all I actually want is to like be alone and like draw cats and shower curtains right now and like listen to talks on the Met Museum's website, like and drink tea. So I don't know. That sounds that's heavenly. Like, that's like what I'm looking forward to. And honestly, like not to sound like a downer, like you don't want to participate in the, have all this, the shows and stuff, but I just, I feel like it's, that's the real reward. And that's the thing I tell artists all the time, you know, that I speak with and, and it's just, that's just really the reward more than, more than anything. It's just like being able to make it or to be alone, to make it or to have that time. So I feel like that's the best answer. I don't know. It sounds. Yeah. And also just, like, what would you make if you could suspend self-doubt? If you could suspend self-doubt for six months, what would you make? That is a very exciting prospect to me because it's like your doubts are the things that get in your head. Like, will this stuff match my old work? 
will people think I'm dumb? Will people think I'm crazy? Will I get weird comments? Like, will I ever show again? Will anyone want to buy this? That's all self-doubts. If you could suspend that, clear them away, you could be incredible. You could be incandescent. You know, we're all our own worst enemy. So my my goals are pretty simple, but they're also like super hard. It's like try not to get in my own way. <laughs> well, it, I mean, just to continue, I I would you feel like do you feel like right now the work you're making suspends like most, if not all, self doubt? I mean, it feels like it. It doesn't feel like yes, you know, there's a battle, but it, it actually feels like you're making that kind of work right now for yourself. Yeah, like once I went through that you know, I guess, what do they call that when it's like a flaming inferno and you have to walk a crucible. I went through the self-help <laughs> crucible. Um, yes. Then doubts still plague me, but I am pretty much doing whatever I think right now. Yeah. And that is incredibly rewarding. And so my job is to not let the doubts block me up again. And I do that through working in the living room and focusing on the process. And so far, so good, because I feel like I'm breaking free of that rut I had been in. So that that's like feels like winning to me. Totally winning. I'm very inspired. I <laughs> Thank you so much. So, you asked such wonderful questions. I hope I hope I did my best. I, I've listened to enough of your podcast, but um, I don't think I'm I'm up to your skills yet. No, you are. You're good. I really appreciate it just talking with you. And I think it's your project is really cool and your art's amazing. And, um, you know, you're just a really terrific voice in the art world. So thank you so much, Amy. Thank you. And I have to just say right back at you. I mean, you're also creating an alternative space for artists that is outside of a rigid structure. And although we're not criticizing the structure. Like I said, I'm not criticizing it, but it's nice to have alternatives. And your work also is Maps Without Keys, which is my favorite kind of art. And you're There's really- definitely no key. There's a key, it's like in a river somewhere. I don't know. And um, you're really brave and you really like take risks and you, you just have this great strong will about staying true to your vision. And um, a lot of people have listened to your, especially your um, How to Have a Studio Visit they've commented even now, even this last week about how helpful it is because, because of your way of approaching things. It's like, it's just information. If you have a bad comment, say it's just information or just show your current work. Cause that's all you want to talk about. Like just standing up for yourself. Like you're a big proponent of standing up for yourself. And I think that's so helpful for artists to hear as well. Thanks, Amy. I'm not always that great at it, but I'm really, I'm, I'm decent. I'll give myself a decent grade <laughs> at communicating that for others, but it's very hard. Like nobody has the right answers or all the right answers for themselves, but I do really believe in, I don't know, it just sounds so cheesy, but I just really, I love art. I love artists and I, my reward will be a, if I have it now, or if I ever feel like I have to evaluate it, it's just the reward is being in conversation with people I really mm -hmm. respect. And and I just, I have a great deal of empathy for people that feel like they can't make it because of X, Y, and Z or that they don't belong. And um, maybe it's just my former self as being a serious athlete and not feeling like I belonged. And, you know, other experiences, just feeling like I want the art world to be kind and to be serious and that, you know, people, 
should just know more information. You know, I'm not the judge and jury, neither are you, none of us are, but Mm -hmm. more information is helpful. And of course, more empathic teaching or kindness is also the most important thing you can do. And it's, it's not about you. It's about helping people or sharing information with people like you do. So, um, you know, that's, that's my contribution to the the bucket of the art world. And like, it might be small, but like, I just said, at least day to day, I feel like even if it feels so hard, I do, I just believe in it and I don't know any other way anymore. So well, I'll just keep on keeping on. Yeah. So. Like, I, I think to your point, like community helps us not quit, like not quitting is the goal. So, you know, everyone's going to go through droughts of their work and, and booms of their work where their work's really going great. And then they get blocked or, you know, maybe they're showing right away and then they lose shows and then they feel like nobody cares about them. And it's an up and down thing. Community is what is going to help you persevere. And we need to persevere because so many people quit. So many people quit, you know? And so I think developing little pockets of community like you do and with the podcast also to give people a little bit of comfort or, or under feeling seen, I think can help somebody not quit. I think, I hope Absolutely. don't quit. Don't quit anybody. Everybody. You have to all stay the course. That's the last, that's the last phrase. I learned that from my dad. So we have to stay the course and uh just have fun while we're doing it so he had the best he was the bee's knees he had the best all the bee's knees i just (laughs) he just was the bee's knees so i feel lucky to have had that and uh but anyway thank you amy for chatting with me today it's been a pleasure to interview the host of pep talks for artists thank you so much Catherine. i appreciate it i'm very touched and i'm honored that you asked and it was literally a pleasure i feel like this flew by. I I just really enjoyed your questions. So thank you so much. You're welcome, Amy. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Pep Talks for Artists. A giant heartfelt thank you to Catherine Haggerty for her generosity in coming on the podcast and asking to interview me and also for her interest and intriguing questions. Thank you so much, Catherine. If you would like to see more examples of my work, just head on over to my website, amytoledo.com, where I obsessively update it, or head on over to Instagram, where you can find me at Toledo. Catherine Haggerty is online too, at catherinehaggerty.com, or on Instagram at Catherine underscore Haggerty. Pep Talks is on Instagram as well, at Pep Talks for Artists. And drumroll please, the podcast has a Patreon. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to patreon.com slash pep talks for artists to find out how you can support the podcast and get exclusive mini episodes and early access to scheduled shows. All links are in the show notes. Thank you to all patrons, including new members, Emmy Womack and Monica Church. Welcome, you guys. And thanks to you for listening. Okay, that's it. I really appreciate you stopping by. And I'll see you next time.
what do they call that when it's like a flaming inferno and you have to walk a crucible. I went through the self-help <laughs> crucible 